hope your 2023 is treating you well so far and it's not too turdy. I'm feeling personally kind of smug right now that uh, I've just returned from four days of sunshine in Spain and my twin and I seized the opportunity to escape the endless rain here in Cornwall during the week I get a break from chemo so it's kind of perfect timing and I'm just really really glad we went there is actually nothing better than an impromptu fuck it moment like that so I feel pretty pretty good right now and if you're not then I actually think today's episode will be just what you need um today's chat is with mental health campaigner Natasha Devon as I say at the start of the conversation she is literally like the big sister we may have never had at school and in fact our whole life but as we discover later on in the conversation being a big sister definitely comes with its drawbacks and maybe too much pressure I think you'll be as impressed as me with Natasha's breadth of knowledge and vocabulary about her experience with anxiety and how it made her never give up on this search for meaning yeah she's just bloody great I didn't actually mention this in the chat but I've known Natasha for many years so I feel a special sort of pride for her and also something else that I didn't mention is that, that Natasha was appointed the government's first ever mental health advisor only to be stripped of said title when she was deemed too outspoken on things like austerity and education policy. So that was just another dumb move by our government, um, but also I think this should tell you a little more about how badass Natasha is. Let's play the chat. Today I'm talking with novelist, activist, radio broadcaster, writer, mental health campaigner, uh, Natasha Devon. Um, Natasha works with young people. She travels the breadth of the UK and the world, actually, delivering classes to teenagers, teachers and parents on mental health, body image, gender inequality and lots more. Um, mate, you are basically the big sister we all wish we'd had at school. I do feel that way, actually, because I am a big sister. I have younger siblings. And whenever I meet people who need support, I get this urge to big sister them, you know? Yeah. Yeah. You were born to do that. And I mean, when we talk about turds, I would say that being a radio DJ on LBC means that you're dealing with turds on the daily. (laughs) Do you know what? (laughs) So many people say this to me and I think it's because the clips that go viral you know, you do get the odd caller who, you know, is stuck in 1972. (laughs) And because it's entertaining, those are the clips that everybody sees on social media. But if you take that in the context of the, the whole time I'm on air, you know, most of the callers that call in are saying something valuable that educates me in some way. And it's a much more sort of nuanced, meaty conversation than perhaps a cursory glance at Twitter or YouTube would attest to. Yeah, and I and I guess like if it was all negative all day, every day, I mean, that would be a struggle to do day in, day out, wouldn't it? So, um, but anyway, we'll, we'll maybe discuss this a bit more later, but um, can you please intro your turd? 
So, so my third is my ongoing anxiety disorder. Um, and it's something that I had to make peace with because I'm in my early 40s now. And when I look back on my life with the mental health knowledge I have now, I realize I had my first panic attack when I was 10. And for that reason, whilst I would never rule out being quote unquote cured, I just don't think it's going anywhere. So it's it's a kind of omnipresent turd that has always been there, you know, throughout the majority of my life. Okay. Wow. Um, so age 10, what brought on that panic attack, do you think? There were a few things that happened when I was 10 that were, um, they were no one's fault, but they sort of made the tectonic plates of my life shift. Um, so my my brother was born and he was four months premature. Um, he was born at 25 weeks. So he was extremely poorly and he was, um, he's only 10 months younger than my other brother because he was so early. There should be 14 months between them, but there's only 10 months between them. So I'd been an only child for a really long time. And then suddenly I've got two siblings, one of whom was really sick. And um, it was a lot, you know, it was a lot to kind of wrap my head around. And, um, and then about six months later, my cousin, um, Chloe, who was a year younger than me, um, she died of, uh, of stomach cancer in the same hospital where Joe was born. Um, so I just, I, I remember just feeling really angry, really confused. And, and I actually asked my mum, what was I like when I was 10? And she said, I just remember that you were a bit wild. And by which I think she means that I was just a bit overwhelmed by everything. And so aware that what we were going through wasn't how things should be you know, that shouldn't happen. And and so I think that's where a lot of my kind of sense of injustice and wanting to make the world fairer comes from. Um, and being the oldest by quite some margin um, just didn't feel like it was okay to express any of that. So I sort of swallowed it down and therefore it came out as panic because it had to come out somehow. Yeah. Yeah, your body has to respond somehow. And the pressure of having to keep it together because you are the oldest, that, I mean, it's going to boil over at some point, isn't it? Um, so uh, when I think of being 10, I definitely wouldn't have had the vocabulary. I wouldn't have known what to say or how, or known like how to deal with that situation. Did you grow up in a household where um, you discussed overwhelming feelings or did you just have to get on with it? Well, I think it's important to remember that this was 1991. Yeah. <laughs> so um, anxiety just wasn't an option no. back then. It, no. it wasn't that I didn't feel able to to name it. It's that the, the whole concept was not something that existed in my world at that point. And even though um, I went to the doctors because the main way that panic attacks manifest for me is in difficulty breathing. And um, the doctor immediately diagnosed me with asthma and gave me an inhaler because it just didn't occur to my GP that this could have been a psychological problem as opposed to a physiological one. And that's, I think, 
part of the reason I wanted to sort of universalize the mental health conversation a little bit, because I grew up during a time when if it happened to you, you first of all, didn't know what on earth was wrong with you. And second of all, just felt totally alone. Um, and then when when the inhaler for asthma didn't work, they thought I had allergies and there were all, all kinds of diagnoses I got that were just wrong. And when nothing worked in terms of the, the medications that I was prescribed, I just thought, oh, well, I'm, maybe I'm just really crap at life. That is not a good thought to be having. And I guess when you're developing and you think like, I mean, when you're already having loads of big feelings, your hormones hit. And then you're thinking that you're crap at life. That would have been so tricky. So what were your coping mechanisms? What? How did you cope with that? Well, I actually, I managed, I now think really rather well all through mm. school, okay. um, through high school, because I had such a positive experience of secondary school. <laughs> and I now know how rare that is and how many people hated school. <laughs> but, um, you know, I look back on it and I think, I wasn't one of the popular kids by any stretch, but I wasn't unpopular enough to be targeted by anyone. I was never bullied. I had a small, close-knit group of friends, and I'm still in touch with those women now. You know, we were incredibly supportive of each other. I felt safe at school. I got on with my teachers, and it was somewhere that I could be and get attention and nurture and things that, and this is no criticism of my mum's parenting whatsoever. She just had so much on her plate with my brothers during the early years of their life. My youngest brother, who was premature, he couldn't be left to cry um, because his lungs weren't developed properly. So he actually did have very severe asthma. And so if he cried in the night, my mum had to get up for him. And where he'd been in an incubator, he'd been woken up every two hours in the hospital to be given his medication. So when he first came back, he woke up every two hours. He woke up every two hours for five years. And my mum had to get up every two hours for five years. And so I think that my teachers at school and my friends at school gave me the attention that I was kind of missing at home. And I was so lucky that I got that. Um, and I would say that actually my mental health didn't get really bad until I went to university because of having such a positive school experience. Well, it just goes to show how much of an impact that makes and like what a difference it makes to have the right peers around you and the right teachers in the right settings. And, you know, you have seen the vast difference that makes because you've visited schools and you've seen far more vulnerable kids who don't have that and who won't come out of school with the same positive experience you did um so when you went to uni okay so did you did you have a group of friends who you could tell that you had um could you tell them that you had anxiety or any kind of mental health situations or anything like that? Um, I think they probably guessed. I, I, ne I never actually told them, um, but they, they've since told me they knew something was wrong. Huh. They didn't know exactly what. But when I went to university, I just completely derailed in, in every way that it's possible to derail. And um, I developed an eating disorder, which I now 
this is the thing. I still didn't really know what anxiety was back in 1999 when I went to university, but we did know about eating disorders. There, there was a lot of discussion about that. So at that point, I knew that I had a mental health issue. And now I realized that the eating disorder was actually a coping mechanism for anxiety. It was a kind of secondary, almost a symptom of, of the original root problem. And when did you, I guess when you, you hear stories like that, you think, well, how, how, did, how did you ever get through that? What made it, what made it okay? What made it bearable? That's a good question. I, I think the, I've always had a, a kind of really strong sense that I had to find a purpose. Um, and even during the times when I felt really lost and like my life was derailing, I think I still had in the back of my head this idea of at some point, your life's going to mean something. I was always searching for meaning. And I think that's part of what, the reason why when I started to recover, one of my first things was, okay, I'm going to do some education around this. I'm going to work with young people because it was a way of making that experience mean something and it not being a sort of waste um, of, of so many years of my life. And I, I, you know, I am incredibly lucky. I, I have such a good relationship with my mum. Uh, we're, you know, we're really, really close and there's nothing that I couldn't tell her and there's nothing that she wouldn't support me with if she had the um, capacity to do so. Um, so I think that helped. But knowing what you know now, looking back, how could things have been different? How could you have not got to the point where your coping mechanism was bulimia, do you think? I think about this a lot. So um, one of the things that I wish I'd known, when I was a teenager, I thought, first of all, that you should only do things that you're good at. <laughs> and second of all, that I was not a sporty person. These were two kind of fundamental beliefs that I was carrying around with me. So back at, when I was at school, you could give up PE in year nine so I thought, brilliant. At the end of year nine, I was like, great, I'll just never exercise again because I suck at it. Um, and I didn't realize how fundamentally important exercise is in terms of maintaining not just your physical health, but your mental health as well. Um, so I look back and I think, you know, I went to university by the sea, you know, and now I love running. And whenever I go back to Aberystwyth, where I went to university, I think this is such a gorgeous place to go for a run. Like, why did, did you never just put your trainers on and go for a run during the whole three years that you were there? I, I think that would have really, really helped. And I also think that, you know, I was always really into my studies. And it's, it's interesting because I was chatting to a, a friend of mine from school the other day and she was like, well, you're just naturally clever. And I said, I'm really not. I just find everything really interesting and therefore I put in a lot of effort into my studies but there were people at school who I know the sort of person she means who just seemed to just get A's and everything yeah, yeah, without yeah. trying I was never one of those people but I am really kind of um, energized by learning I just find most things interesting and when I went to university I just completely dipped out of academic life and I look back now and I'm like you know, you had lecturers, seminar tutors, 
these amazing minds to explore literature with and some of the you know authors and musicians and comedians that would come and make the journey to Aberystwyth and perform at our art center that I just didn't take advantage of and I really regret that and I think if I hadn't lost that part of myself Mm. then things could have been really different Mm. but it's almost like both of those things are on you but what about the things that could have been different at school that were on the school and the teachers and I guess okay we you know it's so easy to say it was the 90s it was different then but like they still had a responsibility to make sure that kids could express themselves better and obviously that's what we're focusing now on now and we have I mean you can tell me this we have maybe better provisions for that but it's not ideal yet but back then how could you have been a kid that would have wanted to exercise or like because I was at school I was exactly the same in my school either you were the kid that was really good at PE or the kid that was like, oh, I'm not going to bother today. Can I do a um, an expressive dance in the corner with my friends? Um, and I was that kid. I was like, we're just going to play some Shania Twain and make up some dances. It's like, okay. The PE teacher was like, yeah, totes. Why was that okay? Um, and that's because we felt so intimidated by the kids that were really good at PE and there's no in between. And that's that's why we dip out of these things. But did you, did you feel like that was probably the same? Like, wait, if I'm shit, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to try. Yeah. I, I, so I'm, I think, a, a kind of textbook perfectionist. And, mm. and people always think that perfectionists are people who do really well at everything. But that's not true. Uh, perfectionists are people who try really hard at the things that they're confident in and then self-sabotage in everything else because yeah. there's a fear of failure. So they'd mm-hmm. rather not try than fail. Um, and that's something that a lot of young people struggle with now. But I think back then I was um, relatively unusual. But I think probably the mistake or, or I guess the oversight that um, the, the staff at my school made was because I was so enthusiastic about certain subjects and because I would go above and beyond and I would like read around the required text and do extra essays and shit like that. I'm like, they never went, okay, but is she really enthusiastic about learning or is this undiagnosed anxiety? You know, there's a, there's a whole thing um, about oldest sisters. Are you the oldest sister? It's it's like a hashtag um, on social media. And one of them is, um, were you top of your class at school or were you just an oldest sister with undiagnosed anxiety? <laughs> and I and I think part of my kind of overworking might have been a coping mechanism. And it would have been nice if someone had picked up on that. But I don't blame them for not because no one knew about it. Yeah. Um, okay, so how's your anxiety today? Well, I kind of, um, I always describe it as a bit like if I had diabetes <laughs> insofar as I have to be vigilant and I've had to make adjustments to the way I live in order to manage it. But it certainly doesn't define who I am and it doesn't stop me from doing anything anymore. It doesn't stop me from being um, successful or happy anymore. Um, But I I take medication. um, I've had a lot of therapy. And I also learned that I have to prioritize exercise, mindfulness, meditation, rest. I can't afford to let those things slide. And through a combination of all of those things, 
I'm at a place where, um, yeah, it's about the same as if I had diabetes. Wow. It's, it's, tell, tell me how, from everything you know, and since you have that incredible sense of purpose at a very young age, well, you know, that, that feeling of, well, it's got to get better because I will do something with this. How did that, how did that play out to start with? What did you go and do to start with? Because obviously I know the, the, how much you've done since then, but where did it really start where you thought, I'm going to use this experience? Yeah, so I I think I've really, since the start of my career, my motivation has completely changed. Mm-hmm. So I started, well, I came up with the idea of going into schools in 2008 when I was 26. And it was very much, I need to make my experience mean something. And it was very much that kind of old school mental health lesson of going in and telling teenagers about my story as a kind of cautionary tale. Um, But then I kind of started to reflect and I thought, do you know what? Part of the reason that I didn't recognize mental health difficulties when they were happening to me was because that's the kind of education I received with people who told their story. And it was always quite an extreme story as well. That was very interesting, very charismatic people, very entertaining. We were very engaged, but we wouldn't have necessarily applied it to ourselves. And so that's where I I kind of came up with this idea of doing focus groups with young people and saying, you know, what what are your day-to-day challenges? What are you struggling with? What would you like more information on? And now, if possible, I try not to talk about myself <laughs> at all. Um, but sometimes they'll ask, you know, where does your interest in this come from? Or, um, you know, I think sometimes it is useful for them to hear about how I manage anxiety ongoing. But I'm very hyper aware of a lot of people in the kind of wellness space have got a massive messiah complex and I think that I've kind of flirted with that in the past and I've got to be super vigilant against it so when people are like oh you're a guru I'm like can you not can you not like actually anybody who claims to have the answers is either deluded or lying (laughs) you know we can we can only give you the benefit of expertise and experience and no one's got it 100% right. And you you always have to kind of caution against that because other people are looking for a messiah or a guru in, in this area and they'll treat you like that. And you can start to believe your own publicity, you know. Oh my gosh. Yeah. The, I mean, I have seen it, but I think the term, yeah, the term messiah complex is, is so right. And I have seen it so much myself in the space that, you know, the I guess the cancer campaigning space as well and, and the wellness space. Um, you know, and I've seen the God complex in 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 people that think that they can fix problems like cancer, and and it, it it's so true. And f- for me, it's way more important to see the authenticity of a story, to see the the ev- every angle of it, not a this is what happened to me, and look how brilliant I am now. Because there's this huge in between bit that people cannot connect with. It's the but what about the day to day, and and how does that suit? me in my situation because not everything can be exactly transplanted into everyone's real life situation so I think your yeah. approach is way healthier and way more like effective surely for the people you're speaking to 
Well, I also think it's such a fine line to tread where you want to normalize the mental health conversation, but you don't want to glamorize. Mm-hmm. And and I'm really aware um, there's a brilliant writer actually um, called Kelsey Osgood who, who wrote um, a book called How to Disappear Completely. Mm-hmm. And she talks about this phenomenon and it's something that I've seen a lot that there's, you know, footballers, politicians, actors, musicians, people with very high profile aspirational jobs who speak about their mental health struggles. And whilst that has enormous value, if you're not careful, what that can turn into is mental health issues make you creative or they make you talented or they're kind of part and parcel of um, being extraordinary in some way. And so that's why I think it's more useful to focus on ongoing management and recovery because, you know, mental health struggles do give you um, benefit in terms of they force you to understand how you think and how you behave and why. And that's a a journey probably everyone should go through. But it's the recovery that has the benefit, not the illness, if if that makes sense. It does. And I've seen you say this before as well and uh, about how people almost weaponize it in a way, but not in a way that helps people. I think what you're saying is so much more, it's just a better way of summing it up really. And also we should listen to the people that have had this experience and not just assume that everyone's the same. And I've also seen that you've, you were campaigning for mental first aid in workplaces to become a thing that needs, you know, it's almost statutory, right? How's that, how's that gone? That was um, a campaign that you started a couple of years ago, wasn't it? <laughs> oh, um, so I don't, do you know this? You probably do know this because you campaign as well, that every time there's a cabinet reshuffle, all the laws that are in mm-hmm. the process of going through get put back to, to square one. Mm-hmm. So interesting time over the past couple of years to be campaigning for a law change. <laughs> I think what people need to understand is we're just campaigning for parity. If, if you are in a workspace where it's a size that you have to have a physical first aider. We also want you to have a mental health first aider. So people who know what to do if you're exhibiting symptoms of depression or if you have a panic attack or if you're suicidal, they know what to say, what not to say and where to signpost you to. It's not meant to be a substitute for any kind of services. It's just, it's the idea that if the first person that notices that you're struggling knows what to say, that's going to be helpful. Yeah. That's all we're saying. And I don't see how anyone could argue with that. And we have nearly got that law change put through so many times. And then a new government comes in. So we just keep, you know, we move. Yeah. We keep pushing forward on it. But you get that really frustrating answer. I don't know if you've, if you've ever had this, and I do believe it to be a uniquely Tory argument, which is um, we're not going to make this law because we think ideally people would do more than that. And if we make this law, then people will think that's all they have to do. And they use the same argument with funding. They say, we're not, we're not going to ring fence funding for mental health services because some local authorities may wish to spend more. And you're like, well, no, nothing's stopping them from doing more. <laughs> they want to do more, but at least give everyone the basics. Do you, have you come up against that before? It's so like, Ugh. I absolutely have, <laughs> and it's it's people, and it, but you're assuming that people will do the bare minimum when at the moment they're doing nothing. So the bare minimum is even better 
than nothing. But to not even put it in front of people and say, this is now has to happen, to make it part of like someone's consciousness, it's just not right. I think even the fact that you're talking about uh, mental first aid in the workplace, because I think it's still such a new thing and so many people don't know what it is. And people are very scared of it because like you said, people think, oh, well, if if I need to physically help someone like from a heart attack, then how can I do that with their brain? I'm like, and it's it's not about that. It's about literally just having that initial conversation, noticing, noticing things subtly in the workplace. Is someone having, is someone struggling? Are you noticing some kind of eating pattern or things like that, mm. that are not as complicated as you think. So even if it's not strategy, right, then statutory right now, it's not law for you to do this in your workplace. Think about this already because it's, it's so important. It's so helpful. And you know what? I think a lot of the time people are scared of saying the wrong thing. They're scared of doing more harm than good. So they say nothing. Uh-huh. And, and what mental health first aid course gives you is it is like a formula to follow where you, you, you ask, um, you ask lots of open questions, you establish where this person is, what it is they're going through, what help they might need. And if you can defer to that. So if you panic and think, Oh, you know, you, you can go, okay, no, no, I need, I remember my training. This is the right thing to say. I mean, it's a confidence thing as, as much as anything mm. else. And someone's going to feel so much better knowing this stuff than not at all. And thinking that it's something really complicated. Um, happy to say that we have mental mental first wait hang on mental health first aiders at copperfield in let's talk about glitter the glittery bits of you having anxiety having that initial panic attack when you were 10 what is the glitter in all of this what do you want to identify as the glittery parts in all this well i think that i wouldn't have achieved as much if i didn't have anxiety it has been my driving force and it's there have been times where I've literally felt like I'm vibrating with it and I'm like okay I have to do something I have to put this somewhere otherwise I'm going to implode Um, and you can't dissociate the two things you know literally people say to me you've got the most amazing work ethic and I'm like it's not a work ethic it's (laughs) if I sit still I will become so anxious that you know I will spontaneously combust um so I think that's that's one aspect of the glitter and then another is that it's um it's given me the ability to relate to people and connect with people and I actually don't think there's anything more important in life (laughs) than being able Mm -hmm. to do that yeah yeah, because of the way your brain works. And also, I want to bring up something glittery. This is an article you wrote so long ago, you might not remember. Or oh, hopefully you do. I hope this is like something that you do off the back of doing this in a school. But you went into a school and they used a jar and they put glitter in it. And they used the glitter as a sort of metaphor of what their brain does when they're having like, I don't know, big feelings or they're feeling angry or they're feeling anxious or whatever. And then they call it the glitter brain. And then that sort of communicates to their mates or their peers or teachers that they might need help or, you know, and there's no judgment because you don't have to discuss it any further, but your brain is having a glitter brain moment. Please tell me you have a jar at home and you do that too. <laughs> <laughs> I, 
don't actually do that at home, but maybe I should. But yeah, I thought that was brilliant. That was with really small children. That was with kind of five, six year olds. And and they were saying, I've got glitter brain. Um, and yeah, and it was it, a really great way to kind of convey to them what's going on in their head when they feel overwhelmed and, and gave them, um, like you say, a, a non-pathologized and a non-judgmental way of being able mm. to to communicate that. So yeah, that really did stick with me, the, the glitter brain thing. Yeah, I love it. I love it. Well, anything to do with glitter sticks right out at me. Um, I think, yeah, finding connection through your anxiety is amazing. An amazing glittery thing. But um, from an observer and everything that I've seen you achieve since, I'd say that you've, I mean, there are so many glittery parts to what you've you've done and the many kids that you're helping all the time you're going into schools all the time to help them with all this stuff that would have really been helpful to you and that wouldn't have happened had you not experienced um you know a mental health issue yourself that is true I mean my my entire career has yeah. been been formed around the 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 turd glittering mm. the turd mm. um I guess yeah, and I, you know, I'm the, I'm the same. I don't want to say that my whole career is based on some cancer cells that went a bit, well, you know, some cells that went a bit weird in my body. Like I want to say, like, well, I was I was more than that. Like, and it took so much grit and you know, you know, so much other qualities to do that. But I wouldn't have if it hadn't been for my diagnosis. I just wouldn't. I wasn't sure what you were going to say today about your turd, but um, I also can we just quickly talk about toxic friendships. <laughs> Because yes, that is yes, also a massive yeah. <laughs> turd, and your book called Toxic. Um, you know that is again something that is so helpful for young people, and off the back of something that you learnt from focus groups, where young people said to you, "Yeah, um, okay, it's great that you're telling us about boundaries and how to, you know, get out of toxic, like potentially relationships, but what about friendships? That's way trickier." And gosh, I wish I'd learned about that when I was younger, because it is like, it's just something we don't think about. And it's like, it's, you don't have like a breakup with a friend. There's no. usually loads more drama or there's no drama. And I think people expect drama, but there doesn't need to be drama. And it's okay no. to not be friends with someone forever. And I think it's just like, don't you wish we'd been told that? Yeah. I, another thing. So there's two things I think that I'm trying to dispel that are kind of huge cultural myths that uh -huh. we would have grown up with. Um, one is that you your BFF provides all of your emotional needs. So mm -hmm. I think for for people kind of our age, people in their their 30s and 40s, we rejected the idea of a prince charming. Um, that, you know, that was going to sweep us off our feet and we're going to live happily ever, ever after because we were, you know, Spice Girl feminists. And and in that vein, we went, right, what we're going to have is we're going to have a BFF, our ride or die <laughs> woman sister friend yeah. who fulfills exactly the same role, you know, provi provides all of our emotional needs, but we don't necessarily have sex with. Um, and I think in some ways that idea is just as misguided and just as toxic because it, no one can provide you with all of your emotional needs. And that's okay. It's okay to have different friends that you go to, to for different things, depending on what you want and need on that day. It doesn't make your friendship any less 
valuable or any less valid. And so that was the one thing. And then the other thing was this idea that the world is divided into heroes and villains. And, um, you know, it's it's about good triumphing over evil. And I'm so glad now that Disney have started doing their stories from the perspective of the antagonist, because something that I was trying to do with Toxic, my book was ensure that if I wrote that story from the perspective of the quote unquote villain, the the toxic friend, Mm. it would still make sense because there is a reason why she does everything that she does. There's a reason why she is what she is. And in some ways she's a really sympathetic character. She's certainly a very attractive character. There's a reason that um, Luella, my, my protagonist becomes sort of platonically infatuated with her and it's because she's sparkly and vivacious and charming and you know people who are going to be a toxic presence in your life very often are all of these things and they very often are vulnerable as well because they've they've had something happen in their lives that has made them vulnerable and you want to look after them and it's okay to acknowledge all of that that you know somebody doesn't have to be Darth Vader (laughs) for you to go okay, we're not good for each other. This dynamic is not healthy for us. I'm going to walk away. Yeah. Yeah, it doesn't have to be those extremes. Um, But yeah, I just, it's just not talked about enough. I really don't think it is. But, you know, we've all experienced that guilt or that feeling like, but we've been friends for ages, so we should stay friends for life until we die. And that's just Mm. not the case. If it's not healthy, it's okay to say this this is over or or not or not i've i was actually yeah. discussing this with a friend the other day and she says i'm more of a quiet quitter when it comes to like friendships <laughs> like i just sort of disappear <laughs> yeah. and and i think well if that means you've like recognized the boundaries and realized that it's not good for you anymore then that's okay so mm. yeah thanks for like, writing on this subject to kind of sum things up from your turd and your glitter, what would you say the one lesson is that you'd want to share from your turd or the glittering of it? The thing that's been most helpful for me to bear in mind is that the reason that we have emotions, the reason we've evolved to have emotions is they're there to teach us something Mm. um, about how to do it differently or what to do if this situation arises again or, um, something that we need to change. And so the sometimes the healthiest thing you can do when you're going through something is knowing that it will pass, no matter what it is, at some point it's going to pass, is just to sit with it and go, okay, what what is this experience trying to teach me? And that's also the fastest way to process it and, and move forward in, in my experience. And that would be my, my biggest bit of transferable wisdom is that so many people, we spend our whole lives, and, and certainly I did for a long time, running around trying to distract ourselves from what's going on. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you, you have that gut instinct, you have that inner monologue for a reason. Yeah. And it's such a good one and something that we don't listen we have to listen to and engage with um I'm so glad that you said at the beginning of this chat actually that you've come to the place of like realizing that anxiety doesn't go away it's just something that it but it is something that you can live with and you you find ways of living with it I'm actually curious to know 
when that sort of that switch sort of flipped for you and you kind of went wait this isn't something I can cure anxiety isn't cure isn't something I can cure for myself but I can live with this so when I recovered from my eating disorder really quickly to the point where my therapist was going this is borderline miraculous like no one does this and the reason for that was because, as I say, it was a symptom. So I, I, I kind of did that thing of going, I'm cured. I found the answer to, to everything, la, sort of thing. And then I kind of went, oh, no, actually, I'm still not okay. And that was a big lesson in, you, you know, that behaviours and underlying causes are, are kind of a different thing. I, I sort of noticed that in others, and it's very common in addiction as well, of you get that euphoria of the initial change in your mood and your lifestyle, and you think that you have found the answer to life and, and you want to tell everyone, and then you have your first dip or your first relapse, and you you have a choice then. You can either go, right, I'm back to square one, or you can say, oh, okay, this is a presence that I'm going to have to learn to live alongside and it was that quite reassuring yeah I think it is I think once you reconcile yourself to the fact that it, you know there's I don't know if you've seen that um that video it's an animated video called I had a black dog and it's about depression and um at the beginning the dog starts off and it's huge and it's really snarly and it's kind of sitting on his chest when he's trying to go to sleep and um and then he trains it. He trains the dog and the dog becomes really small and cute and kind of like his companion. Um, and it's, I think that's a really good metaphor of, uh, you know, it's, it's something that you can keep at your heel. You're, you're, yeah. You're doing life with this dog rather than like constantly fighting this big snarly dog. Well, I guess kudos for you to you for getting to that place because that would have taken some hard work on your part, for sure. Thank you. I mean, but I'm still a work in progress, as everybody either is or should be. Yeah, and that's the beauty of the human experience. <laughs> constantly growing, <laughs> constantly learning, constantly developing. Um, and then can you also tell me if there was something whether it's tangible or otherwise, that you think has helped you to glitter your turd? Something that's helped me to glitter my turd. Oh, there've been so many things. I think it's the people who have sort of seen something in me, even when I didn't see it in myself. So I, I, I talk about in my first book, A Beginner's Guide to Being Mental, which is a, is a nonfiction book. I talk about my friend Adrian, who is one of my oldest friends, but I met him apart from my school friends kind of thing. I guess I would say he's one of the first people that I chose as a friend, as opposed to being kind of flung into an environment with them, um, if you see what I mean. And um, I met him when I was in my early 20s. And so I was already really struggling with um, mental illness. And, and I actually said to him, sort of after my recovery journey had started, I said to him, like, why? First of all, why did you become friends with me? And second of all, why have you stayed friends with me? Like, I don't understand what you were getting out of it, you know? And he said, because he said, you know, there's, you've always been the same at your core. Like it was hard to see sometimes, but he said, you know, fundamentally your character 
hasn't changed. It's just, it got kind of buried in shit (laughs) on a couple of occasions. And so I think having just those few people in your life who see through to the core of you and, and help to remind you of who you really are is, is what, is what glitters the turd really. That is so nice and so true. Just someone who can unbury you from your shit and can still see that you're in there is, I mean, precious, isn't it? But also, isn't it, wouldn't it be great if we just asked our friends more like, why are you friends with me? <laughs> what is it about me that you like <laughs> that you're still hanging around for? <laughs> We just got it just to be I wasn't task. even fishing. I was just genu- <laughs> genuinely curious. I was like, if I was you, I wouldn't have been friends with me all that time. Yeah, yeah. you were hoping you was going to, because that's what you needed. You needed someone to say, yeah, you are a piece of shit and I'm leaving. Because that's what you were probably your, that's what your brain was telling you. But it's, I'm glad he said the opposite, that you're worth sticking around for. <laughs> oh, good. Um, that's so nice. Um, let's, uh, listen to Lauren, uh, one of my listeners, who has glittered their turd too. Hi, Chris. I'm currently working as a doctor. And when I was a bit younger, so when I was 24, I lost my husband, Dan. He was also very young at the time. He was 31 when he died. I looked after him for three years and it was really horrible time, but I feel really glad that I got to spend that time with him still though but after that I felt inspired to become a doctor and help other people with cancer especially younger people and now I've been working as a doctor for three years it's been a bit of a tough journey lots of things remind me of of him at work but I'm getting there and I think I'm doing an okay job so that's kind of the turd that happened in my life and then I tried to make something positive out of it and use some of the experience or our experience that we shared together to help other people so that's the glittery bit i mean i'd say that's quite an extreme um glitter isn't it to go through something like that and then decide well i'm going to study all those years and try and help people oh lauren you're amazing Um, really amazing yeah and also I have no doubt that Dan is with her in all those tricky conversations and just knowing what she knows about seeing the end of life and the young person would help her Mm. do her job so fucking well I just know it because I mean so often you know you I don't know if you've been with um a medical professional and thought what I'm going through how like you 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 might know it in a textbook but do you know anyone in your life do you love someone who's going through what I'm going through would you say this what you're saying to me right now if you did and I think not that I want all of my doctors to know the actual pain and heartache of cancer but and and obviously they've probably seen so many patients of their so many patients die, but to have that experience of someone in their life that they deeply care about, um, and then deal with this is just they're going to bring a whole new level of care, aren't they? Yeah, I, um, 
again, I, I, something I wrote about in my book, my, my, um, my spleen exploded for no reason in 2013. That was another quite major turd in my life, actually. Um, and, um, that never happens. And so I had the experience of having medical professionals around me going, I don't know what's wrong with you, mm. which is terrifying. Mm. Um, and for me, the, uh, there was this moment where, cause you know, I was, I was thinking, about, I was so scared, but I was also thinking, look, this is just a, another day at the office for these people. And they have to be that way. Like they can't be devastated if, if I die because mm-hmm. they'd never be able to do their job. And I sort of understood that even as I was being terrified, but there was a doctor who came in who just properly looked at me and went, you're really in a lot of pain, aren't you? And I was like, yeah. And he went, okay, we're going to get you some morphine. And although that didn't kind of solve the issue, just somebody sort of looking at me with humanity as Mm -hmm. a human being and sort of responding to me on that level, I'll never forget that. That moment of connection um, was, you know, so meaningful in that time. So I think, you know, having people who see your humanity in that situation is so important. Yeah. Thank you, Lauren, for sharing your turd and your glitter with us. Okay. Well, the only thing left to do now, Natasha, is to cheers to our turds. Have you got a drink nearby? Or an imaginary we are? Yeah, I've got a Barocca. Yes. Do you know what? (laughs) The guest I had on uh, a couple of weeks ago had Barocca as well, and I was drinking Barocca. It's like, maybe this podcast (laughs) should be sponsored by Barocca. (laughs) Let's hope they're listening. Yeah. Um, I'm just on plain old boring water today. But let's cheers to your turd, my turd, everyone's turds, and to life. Cheers. Cheers. What a brilliant human. Firstly, I wonder how many older sisters were listening to this and ferociously nodding along with what Natasha was saying. Um, And I also wonder how many of you can relate to everything she said about toxic friendships. I definitely did. There was so much in there that I can relate to and agree with. But what I think I loved most was when she said that it's the recovery of her mental illness that has the biggest benefit, not the actual illness. Um, She's been smart enough to know when her story is of benefit and when it's not and glamorizing mental health is really not the answer i'm just really glad we have natasha to keep educating us all on this definitely check out natasha's book and her campaigning work and then if you're going through something tricky right now ask yourself what this turd is trying to teach you um thank you so much natasha for chatting to me Thank you, Lauren, for sharing your turd and telling us about Dan. And of course, lastly, thanks to you guys for listening to my 20th episode. What? Until next time, happy turd glittering. Oh.